have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. As we come to this chapter, uh, this, uh, this brings to a close the period of the creation to the flood. Now, this is going to bring to a close a populated world. It was a world populated with people. There were cities, culture, and all of that was completely destroyed. And so as we come to chapter 6, we're at the brink of that occurrence, the flood. Uh, we want to remember that when we're reading the Bible, uh, the way it has been written and organized, uh, they are presenting something to us for, to serve a, a specific purpose. Uh, so we have to ask ourselves, you know, how is uh, the book of Genesis uh, opening up to us? The first 11 chapters are just sweeping chapters. They just cover such a vast amount of time, and they just hit on big key uh, incidents, big key events. Uh, and then things start to slow down in chapter 12, but the first 11 chapters are, are sweeping chapters. And uh, so we have to ask ourselves, you know, why is this information being presented to us in this way? Uh, because it opens with the creation, and then we have the fall, and then Abel is murdered, and so the redemptive line begins to move through Seth. And then there's the genealogies at the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 that bridge this enormous gap of time from those early beginnings all the way to the end, or the flood. And so we want to remember why this information is being presented to us in this way. Um, it is defining the context for our lives. So when you read the Bible, it's talking to you uh, and it's creating a context for you to, uh, to live your life. In other words, um, in, in whatever is happening in your life, whatever question you have, whatever decision, whatever you see happening around you elsewhere in the world, it is all plugging into the context created by the Bible. God is telling us the most important things that we need to, to know. And so when we look at the book of Genesis, when we come to chapter 6, it is being prepared and presented in a specific way for the reader. And the reader is all of us who read the Bible, but it was written specifically at this particular time to the nation of Israel, and even more to the point, it was written to the Jewish people while they were in the wilderness. So if you think about the first five books of the Bible, um, the five, Penta means five, so the first five books, the Pentateuch, was written by Moses. And when did Moses write them? When did Genesis get written down? We know Moses lived about 120 years, so the first 40 years of his life was lived in Egypt. And uh, then he realized he was Hebrew, and there was an incident, and so he had to flee from Egypt, and he goes to the land of Midian. And he gets married in Midian, and he becomes a shepherd. And at the close of those 40 years, so he's now about 80, God calls him back to Egypt to deliver the people out of the bondage there. And so he leads them out, and they, they escape uh, from Egypt, they, God opens the Red Sea and they, they part, the Red Sea is parted and they move into the wilderness. 
And then they begin to move through the wilderness, which is basically the Sinai Peninsula. It's just a gigantic desert. And they move through the desert to Israel. They're headed towards Canaan. And when they get all the way up to Canaan, they send some spies in there to see what the place is looking like, to kind of scout the land, try to get a, an idea of how they're going to accomplish this task. And everybody comes back and says, we can't do it. These cities are huge. They're fortified. They've got giant armies. There's even giants. And uh, this is a suicide mission. We can't do this. And so they lose heart, and they decide not to enter. And so the Jewish people spend the next 40 years in the wilderness, in that desert. And then at the close of those 40 years, that generation perishes in the wilderness, and the Jewish people go into the promised land. And that is what we see happening in the book of Joshua. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And so when you look at the first five books, you have to ask yourself, what's in them? So the, the book of Genesis is a, is a history book. It tells us uh, the origins of the Jewish people. It tells us of the creation of man and that God's redemptive line is going to flow through Abraham uh, in the nation of Israel. The book of Exodus is about the Exodus and all of those dramatic events that followed that. It was, it's, it's a crazy book, incredible book, just, uh, just crazy. The book of Exodus is, a, is an amazing book. Genesis is an amazing book. It's 50 chapters, and it's going to take us a while to get through it. But, um, uh, and then you get to Leviticus. Leviticus is um, kind of like a um, the rule book, handbook for how to live. It's the law. And so when you're thinking, these Jewish people are in the wilderness for 40 years. So the book of Exodus had to have been written after the Exodus. So now we're in the wilderness. Um, the book of Leviticus had to have been written pretty early because it was the rule book. It told them how to, to build the tabernacle. It told them how to uh, obey the law, all of the ways that they were supposed to live and incorporate the law into their lives. And so that had to be done pretty early on. And then when you get to the book of Numbers, it's all about the nation of Israel. It's very developed. And, but there's, uh, it tells us in chapter 13 about these spies that went into the land and they came back out and said, no, we can't do it. And then all the things that follow after that. And so it was a, the book of Numbers was written at least after that. And then you come to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is the telling of the law. It's a retelling of the law. The book of Deuteronomy is written right before the nation goes into Canaan. And then we know that Moses didn't get to go into the to land of Canaan. He didn't go. He died in the wilderness too. And so that means that the Pentateuch was written in the wilderness after many of these events had occurred. And they were all written by Moses. And if you think about what is in these five books, how intense they are, how detailed they are, and how much stuff happens, it is action-packed. This was a very busy 40 years. And somehow, these books were written. Think of the way they were living in tents. They were nomads. And all of the dramatic events that was occurring. The Pentateuch itself is a miracle. Uh, it, is, it is so detailed and well written. It's the, each one of these books is a masterpiece. Which of course is no surprise to us because it was written 
by Moses, but God wrote these words through him. And so this is very important as we approach chapter 6, because what is being told to them is uh, these, these Jewish people in the wilderness, the book of Genesis saying, this is why the world is the way it is. Everything that you see, this is why. Um, this is why there had to be a flood. And this is why idolatry is so bad. And this is why covenant life is the way to go. Now, as we look at these first verses of chapter 6, our passage may not seem to have a lot to do with that. But we have to remember that the Pentateuch is a call. It is a call to God's people to choose Him over the beliefs and practices of those who live outside of the covenant. It is a call to follow. When we consider idolatry, when we consider the stories behind all of their gods, when we consider their fertility rituals, and the widespread mythologies, chapter 6 should take on a much deeper meaning for us. Now, the details of chapter 6 reveal how seriously and how quickly things deteriorated from the fall to chapter 6. It shows us that in, in about 1656 years, things had really went south. Earth had become Las Vegas for demons. In chapter 6, verse 15, it tells us that every creature, that means all of the animals and mankind, every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. And man's heart is described in verse 5. It says that every scheme, and that word literally means impulse, every impulse his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. And so we turn to the first four verses of chapter 6, and I will, I will openly admit that these first four verses are very difficult. They're difficult to interpret. They're difficult to understand. And no matter what I say or how long I study this, because I started studying this uh, pretty much after I got saved, you know, people brought this up to me and I started looking at it. So I've wrestled with these verses for a long time now, and uh, I still am not sure about the interpretation. There's still questions. But that's okay. Just because I don't understand doesn't mean that it's not true. And many things we're going to understand better later, after we die. Those of us who have went before us that are asleep today, that are in heaven with, with God, um, they understand things so much better than we do. I don't know how uh, they look at our Bible study, uh, but they know the inside scoop now. And so uh, these first four verses have caused no short amount of debates. Very controversial, very debated texts. It's because uh, interpreters go in different directions. And these first uh, four verses have even become kind of a go-to passage. There's other go-to passages, but this is kind of a go-to passage for people who uh, thrive on conspiracies, uh, ancient mysteries, aliens. Uh, this is, this is your bread and butter right here. If you want to go someplace in the Bible, this is one of the places these folks go to. And so let's read them together. Uh, it's just these first four verses, chapter 6. 
when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. Now that's a general statement. We're just going to look at four verses this morning. (laughs) When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. This is a very general statement about all people. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Well, the first thing we have to do is is, uh, try to identify some of these key figures and people. Uh, Sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Well, there's uh, basically uh, two approaches to understanding who they are, and it's kind of interesting because uh, one is a more naturalistic explanation and one is a more supernatural explanation. Uh, one wants to just uh, stay as close to logic and the earth as possible, and the other one wants to go into outer space. Uh, so it's just kind of a, into polar opposites in the interpretation. Uh, but I think as we move through this, we'll find out that there's a, a mixture of both at play here. But um, there's two prevailing ways that sons of God is understood here. Uh, The first one is that this is the line of Seth. The sons of God are the godly line of Seth. And uh, and then the daughters of men are the ungodly line through Cain. Uh, And because they were beautiful, these women, they could care less if they feared God or not. So they were just marrying anybody they wanted. So if we read it this way, when mankind mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. In other words, there was no standard or no measuring stick applied to whether or not you should go out with this woman or not, or you should have children with this person or not. You just married them uh, because they were pretty. They satisfied whatever needs, physical needs that you were wanting, they met those, they checked those boxes, and you could care less whether they, whether they followed God or not. This is the line of thinking in this idea. And it's developed uh, for those reasons I have cited there. Um, the first one is the, the situation that is set up by the genealogies in chapters 4 and 5. And we looked at that last Sunday. Chapter 4 ends with the genealogy of Cain. All of chapter 5 is the genealogy of Seth. And in the genealogy of Cain in chapter 4, uh, there were remarkable things. There were cities and being built and culture, music, um, but uh, not one word about God in any of that. Uh, but when you look at chapter 5 with the line of Seth, uh, we were told that Seth replaced Abel, and we know that Abel had his heart in the right place when he gave his offering to God in chapter 3 before he was murdered. And so for Seth to take his place gives us the indication that he was another person who followed God with his heart. And then as we move through that genealogy over and over and over again, we're told about these people walking with God all the way down to Noah. And so uh, the idea here is that the sons of God are the good guys and the daughters of men are the bad guys. 
and instead of separating yourself from the world, they began to intermarry and just abandon their heart for God. Uh, so that draws from four and five, and so um, uh, this is uh, this identification of sons of God as being believers, if you want to use that term, people who follow God, people who have a heart for God, fear God, um, being identified as sons of God. And uh, in all honesty, it's throughout the Bible um, that people who follow God are described as being God's children. Uh, Deuteronomy 14.1, for example, says, sons of the Lord your God. Uh, Matthew 5.9, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called sons of God. And so this is, a, this is the idea here that this is talking about the good guys. Um, and we're going to look at it here in a minute, but there are New Testament passages that describe demonic involvement in what is happening here in these first four verses. Demons were actively participating in what is occurring here in these four verses. Demons. And because that's true in this, in this interpretation, uh, this is consistent with, uh, with the fallen angel's desire to thwart whatever plans God has. And God kind of laid out a roadmap when he, when he uh, made the, the prophecy and the promise of Genesis 3.15. Um, and so, and we talked about that last week, about the, her seed is the godly line, and his seed, Satan's seed, are those who follow the devil. And remember John chapter 7, we were talking about the, the Pharisees who said, our father's Abraham, and Jesus said, no, your father's the devil. And so it's drawing from that. So this is a, the master plan of God, and the demons are going to run it by turning everybody away from God. And if that's true, they seem to be, have been very successful, and this nearly happened because at the end of the day, only eight people from the lineage of Seth are survived, are, are, are rescued from the flood. And so that beautiful lineage that we saw in chapter 5 deteriorates over time to where almost everybody on the, on the entire planet uh, was not seeking God's face. Only eight people survived. And then the, the final point there about the Nephilim is that uh, on the supernatural interpretation of this, which we're going to look at, uh, the idea is that demons had uh, sex with women, human women, and their children were the Nephilim, these uh, half-hybrid humanoids that were superhuman. Uh, that's the interpretation. And so uh, in keeping with that, this interpretation draws a distinction between the Nephilim and the offspring of this cohabitation. Uh, here's a slide that kind of shows you that. You're basically putting parentheses around uh, this. So it's saying, Moses is telling the people of Israel, he's saying, look, the Nephilim were on the earth back then and afterwards, before the flood and after the flood. They're the great men of old, the great renowned men, the famous men. And, but back when, when this thing happened, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, the Nephilim were there, but the Nephilim were there afterwards. And so it's drawing a distinction between the offspring of the sons of God marrying these women and having children and the Nephilim. It's separating the two. 
Now, uh, I don't go along with uh, the overall scheme of this interpretation. I'm going to I'm going to go in a little bit different direction, and let me at least tell you why. And when I do this, I just want you to know that uh, if you disagree with me, it's okay. I'm okay with you disagreeing. Uh, like I said, there's uh, pick a commentary from August, August, not Augustine. It's Augustine. Go from Augustine all the way up to now. Every commentary you find, you're going to get a different uh, little slant on this thing. But this is basically the two ways that this is understood because. Uh, uh, it's important for us to make an effort to understand this. Uh, it's, one is that because in the Old Testament, every time this specific phrase, sons of God, is used, every time, which is not very many, but every time it is, it's talking about angels. It's not talking about people. It's talking about angels. Um, uh, and then the, the second one is that uh, these angels... In the New Testament, we're going to find out that these demons who were involved in what's happening in these four verses are in prison. God put them in prison. And he did this because of a specific act rather than it just being their general disposition of wanting to thwart God's plans. They did something very specific and God locked them up for it. And the understanding there, uh, if I go backwards of that Genesis chapter Genesis 3.15 thing is just that it's every demon's desire to, to mess with God's plan. Well, that might be true, but if that's the case, then I think Satan would have been the first to be arrested. And he would be in that prison right now, but he's not. And so uh, the other thing is that, you know, man is, you know, demons trying to turn man against God. Man is already against God. Man's nature is already hostile towards God. Demons don't have to do anything to achieve that wonderful goal because we've already done that ourselves. We have to remember that when a person turns to God, it's because God decides to rescue them. And He only rescues those He has elected or those He has chosen to rescue. And so salvation is of the Lord. It's not of people. And uh, it's actually silly to think that you can foil some type of God's plan by turning everybody against him because he will always find his remnant. He will always preserve his remnant. If God has made a promise, he's going to fulfill it. And so it's really a very a foolish game on the part of the demons to think that they can somehow mess up what God's doing. But it's all they have at this point. And so they are going to keep trying, and they do keep trying. And we know that because of other places in the Bible, and we know what has been predicted about what's going to happen in the future. Um, for me... Uh, to identify the sons of God as the line of Seth is a, a really big stretch. And then to identify the daughters of men as the line of Cain, it just, for me, it just seems too contrived. And so uh, I'm, I'm not going to align myself with that one, but I want to give it fair airtime, and so you will, you will know um, uh, that that is a perspective that, that many uh, Bible scholars uh, accept, and it's not wrong or bad. Um, the, the other one is uh, what I described. This is more on the supernatural end. And before I go over this, I just want to say this. Um, at the end of church today, when we're done studying this, uh, you know, there's going to be maybe some questions in your mind and you're, you're not really sure what you think. You're going to read more about later, whatever. Um, uh, but there's, there's things that we can all agree about in the flyover. You know, we can see that something really bad happened. We can see that demons were involved. 
and we can see that man was really messing up bad and God brought a judgment on him. We can all see that. That's easy for us all to agree upon. And, uh, and that's good. It's important for us to, to, to recognize the central truths that are, are irrevocable and not controversial. Easy, easy for us all to see. But so often Christians want to just live there. They want to live at the flyover. You know, there's a lot of churches that are that most of their messages are just getting through your day and anxiety and being a happy person and and just they really don't get into the nitty gritty of scripture. And I think it's important for us to do that. You know, a lot of people will uh, look at the passages like John 15 and Hebrews 6 and all of these these difficult places to interpret in the Bible, and they leave it to someone else or they just don't mess with it. Um, uh, one of the worst examples of this to me is Bible prophecy. Um, People just say, well, I know Jesus is coming back. That's all I really need to know. But uh, God wants us to study the Bible and to make an effort to, to do our best. It's important for us to try to do that. And so this is why we're taking the time with this. I could have just said a few uh, opening things about this and moved on. But uh, uh, because this is a go-to passage for the lost, and uh, because this is a, a, a passage that a lot of Christians will get sidetracked on and develop all kinds of ridiculous system, systematized things that they believe uh, on obscure passages that don't really tell us everything we, about every detail, um, we want to, uh, we're, we're, we're God's people, and so we want to keep our feet on the ground. So it's important for us to, to make an effort to look at the difficult things. Now, the other way that this uh, is viewed, of course, is up here on the screen. It's that fallen angels are, are the sons of God. They're angels, but they're bad angels. They're naughty angels. These are not the good guys. These are the bad ones. And they had children with human women, the daughters of mankind. And some of the, the, the reasons is that uh, when we look at chapter 6, verse 1, we see that, there's, that this entire situation is introduced with a very general statement. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, people were, people were getting married, they were having children. Mankind was getting married and having children and they were multiplying the earth, filling the earth. While that was happening, that's a very general statement. But then it says that the, that the sons of God, uh, so they are intruding into that dynamic. They are entering into something that is already occurring. So that general statement is being interrupted or something is happening uh, that is intrusive. And so uh, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, this is followed by the sons of God who saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And then they did something. And so, uh, the whole concept of, of Cain being bad and Seth being good is, is kind of silly because, you know, uh, Australia was a penal colony, right? And so are all people from Australia bad now? Have you ever watched the God Channel on TV? I mean, there's a lot of believers in Australia. Not as many as we wish there would, but uh, God rescues people from the line of Cain just as much as he, he rescued people from the line of Seth. This is a very general statement about mankind getting married, having children, and filling the earth. Uh, 
like I said, the sons of God is always in the Old Testament. It's a, spe- a specific phrase that you do not see anywhere else in the Old Testament uh, that talks about anybody but angels. In the book of Job, it occurs three times. And, and when we talked about creation, I, Job 38.7 is the one that tells us that the angels existed when everything was created. They watched it happen, and they were rejoicing. So they were eyewitnesses to the creative acts of God. Um, but they are called sons of God in, in, in Job 38.7. In chapters one, uh, in chapters one, verse six of Job, and Job chapter two, verse one, uh, these are two different occurrences where all of the angels come before the throne of God, and they're all referred to as the sons of God. These are angels, and it tells us that on the first occurrence and on the second occurrence, Satan himself also appeared before the throne of God, and so these are angels. Uh, we see this phrase again in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 3, verse 25, when uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, saw a fourth man in there. He said, I thought we only threw three in there. There's a fourth guy. They're all walking around with any ropes on. And they're not being burned. And he said, that fourth guy looks like a son of God. And so he's trying to describe divinity, something very supernatural or special about that being. And so this is another time when that phrase is used to describe something that is supernatural and not human. Um, and of course, we all know, uh, and by the way, that verse is in Aramaic, and, but we also know that that was Jesus in the furnace there, a pre- pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Um, and then the third reason there uh, is that um, the book of Jude, um, these, there's two passages um, there's two passages, one in Jude and one in Second Peter, that talk about what the demons were doing in this uh, passage we're studying right here. Um, in Jude, um, it's talking about false teachers, the context, and it's saying that their destruction is inevitable. It is certain. Um, and then he offers two examples. He's going to offer an example of when the demons did something bad and they were punished, and then when people were doing something bad at Sodom and Gomorrah, they were punished. And so since God took care of that, you can be sure he's going to take care of these false teachers. And so uh, here's the passage in, in Jude. This is Jude 6 and 7. He has kept with eternal chains and darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these angels are currently locked up. Angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. So they did something very bad. Uh, In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them committed sexual immorality and practiced perversions just as they did and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so what is occurring here is... He is showing us that there was a specific time when demons practiced sexual perversion. There was sexual immorality and practicing perversions at Sodom and Gomorrah, just as the angels did. So now we're getting very specific about what these angels did, aren't we? What they did was somehow perverted and it was sexual. And so uh, this is why. 
there's a, a direct correlation here between the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who did these things that they did, and the angels did something very similar in the same way, and they're imprisoned. And so this passage is supposed to be an encouragement to Christians that, uh, that justice will be uh, met out and that God is in control. And so, again, uh, this is a specific thing that these demons did. It's not just their general disposition of hating God and wanting to mess up everything. Uh, they did something specific, and so they have been chained up. God has removed them from the picture so that they can't do it anymore. And then the last uh, passage is in Second Peter. And I will ask you to turn to that one. It's the end of the New Testament, Second uh, Peter chapter 2. So first and second Peter are right before first, second, and third John. So we'll ask you to turn to that. Because it's a longer passage, I think we should all read it together. Now in Second Peter, this is talking about false teachers. And that false teachers are going to come into the church. They're going to cause all kinds of problems. They're going to bring in destructive heresies into the church. So they are going to have their day, and they are going to cause a lot of problems. But again, Peter is saying their destruction is certain. And he's going to say, God did not spare the angels, but he delivered Noah. And he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered Lot. So I hope you can see that we were all narrowing in on this incident that occurred in Genesis chapter 6. Let's look at 2 Peter beginning in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned, them to ruin, and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the, immor of the immoral. For as he lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. And so these are the four reasons. I'll go back uh, to, the, to the list there. And you can see that there's, um, uh, I think, more strength that something is happening here that involves demons cohabitating with women in some fashion. And uh, this is uh, because of this general statement and this intrusion by the sons of God. Sons of God in the Old Testament are angels. And the two examples from Jude and Second Peter, where there's this correlation between what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and what was happening in Genesis chapter 6 and how God brought judgment on both instances. Um, he will spare the church. He, the church will survive. The false teachers will face their destruction. Uh, the ungodly world was destroyed, but he did rescue Noah. And Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but he did rescue Lot. So this is the picture. It's designed, the Bible tells us in both of those places, in Jude and in Peter, that these are examples that should encourage us. That God is in control, 
and that justice will be served and that he is going to protect and preserve the church. Now, uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, angels are having kids. Uh, can angels have children? And uh, that's the question, isn't it? Um, well, the answer is I have no idea. I have no idea if an angel can have a child. I don't know if angels have DNA. I read one commentary, and he's got all crazy things. Demons don't, or angels don't have DNA. I said, well, how do you know an angel doesn't have DNA? You know, we don't know that. Um, the only thing we do know, uh, here's Matthew 22:30 up there. And the context is that there was a woman who was married, her husband died. And so by the law, she kept marrying the brothers. And she married all seven of them, and they died, and then finally she died. And this situation was presented to Jesus as try to catch him. The Sadducees were trying to mess with Jesus because they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And so they said, well, okay, well, when they get to heaven, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus said, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, this doesn't say what an angel's capability is. It just says that we will be like the angels in heaven. We won't be married either. That's what he's saying there. So we don't want to read too much into that. All we, all we are being told is that in the afterlife, in the resurrection, we're not going to be married and giving in marriage. That's not going to be occurring. It doesn't happen with the angels either. Um, now, if we look at our passage again, uh, and I'm, I'm, believe it or not, we're, we're narrowing in here. Um, we look at our passage again, Genesis chapter 6. The, the, the wilder, more supernatural approach to this is that angels cohabitated with human women and had children who were the Nephilim. Uh, but I think that in that first interpretation, they are correct. I think that... Uh, uh, I think that the, the, the film are separate, are, are distinct. And yeah, yeah, I got that verse back up there again. So I, and I, I think that it is distinct, and, and this is why. And, and I could be wrong about this. Um, but the primary reason I believe there is a distinction between the offspring of the sons of God and human women and the Nephilim is because the Nephilim are on the earth before the flood and they are on the earth after the flood. Just look very carefully what it says. The Nephilim, in verse 4, were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. So in order for the Nephilim to show up again after the flood, one of two things has to have happened. One, the demons did it again. So you may have two different groups of demons in prison. The demons who did this before the flood and some demons that did it again and they're in prison too. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. It just tells us that the Nephilim are after the flood. So we're having to really, we're having to get out there on, on thin air and assume that demons did it again and those demons are in prison. We have to assume that. Um, the other thing is if there was a recessive gene, a, a gene variant that was uh, was carried on the ark by the eight survivors. And that means that two of them had to have this gene in order for them to have this child, the Nephilim again. And so uh, think of it, you've got eight people and two of the four have the gene, two of the eight have the gene, that's 25% of human, mankind. 
and we're suggesting that they have this hybrid DNA of half angel, half man. Hybrid children surviving the judgment. So God's judgment of, of what was happening, the, the sinfulness of man, what the demons were doing. You know, God put a stop to it. He said, all right, the demons are, are being naughty. We're locking them up. And I'm starting, it, I'm starting this over. And he, he destroys the world. And so what we're suggesting, if, if the Nephilim are these hybrids, is that God wasn't successful. The hybrid gene followed through. Or after the flood, the demons did it again. And to me, that's, that's too much of a stretch. Um, uh, I think that what really is happening here is that the sons of God were probably uh, powerful rulers, men, powerful rulers who were indwelt by fallen angels. And they had children. They had human children. The extraordinary men described here are the powerful men of old, the famous men. And this is referring to the Nephilim. The Nephilim. Now, in closing, this is why. This is important. Um, Moses is making this distinction in the book of Genesis because the Israelites are going to be facing the giants in Canaan. You'll remember that when the spies, they sent, they spent one, they, they, in Numbers chapter 13, they sent one of each, each tribe into Canaan to spy out the land. And they came back and Caleb was the only one who said, no, we can do it. God is with us. God has removed their strength. They will fall. But everybody else uh, gave a bad report. Not a false report, a bad report. A report to discourage everybody from having heart and to, to having faith and going forward and doing this. Um, and this is, this is what they said here in, 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 Joshua, or in, a, in Numbers chapter 13. The land we pass through to explore is the one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw, it, saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. They come from the Nephilim. To ourselves we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed to them the same. And so in the genetic line of Adam was the uh, ability for, for all, all people. And in there, is, there were giants. There were giants before the flood, and there were giants after the flood. You may remember that the half tribe of Manasseh ended up keeping some land on the, on the other side of the Jordan River that they conquered uh, the King Og of, Bash, of Bashan. And he was a giant. Uh, we are told in, uh, uh, they're called, the, this version of giants were called the Rephaim, and, which means terrible ones. And uh, Deuteronomy 3.11 tells us that he was the last one of the Rephaim giants, that king. Then when the, they did enter the camp, so this is very important, just um, if you can imagine all of the mythologies, the stories behind all of these gods, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, sexual perverted uh, fertility rituals, all of the things that was going on in Canaan, Egypt, Mesopotamia, all these things everybody believed, uh, and it's all mired into myths and history and things people said and brought forward. And uh, Moses is saying, look, there were some demons that, that that invaded these men and they had kids and, and they're in prison for that. But the giants are not them. That's not them. Those are not half angel, 
half human. They're not superhuman people that we can't beat. Um, they're just men like you and I. They're just really big. This is very important because they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. And so we see this happen in the book of Joshua. At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, Anab, all the hill country of Judah and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. This, these are giants. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And you may remember studying the book of Judges that those are three of the five cities that the Philistines lived in. And you might be able to think of a Philistine who was a giant. Goliath was from Gath. He was from one of those cities. And if you read 1 Samuel chapter 17, you'll find out that he is very much a man. He is described as a man. Giants were just people. It's just genetic. Just like dark skin, light skin, Asian faces and white faces. It's just genetics, not demons, not angels, not hybrid humans. So regardless of myths, regardless of mythologies, doctrines of idolatries, fears and suspicions, the giants were not superhumans, they were not hybrids, they were just really big. In closing, um, <clears throat> what we'll be looking at next in the book is the flood. And we remember the things that led up to this flood. We looked at them here. As we read in chapter six, we're gonna, we're gonna learn more about the depravity of man, and how bad things were. It was a, a dark time in our history and it brought upon God's judgment. If you look carefully there at verse three, it says that God's spirit will not strive with man forever. That word means abide. He will not remain forever. In other words, God has his limits. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, and you'll know that as the Olivet Discourse. This is when they were asking Jesus, when is this all going to happen? When are the last days? When is this all going to come to fruition? When is, when is, when is the Messiah coming back? When is, when is all this going to, when is justice going to come? When is all this going to occur? And Jesus begins to explain to them things they can look for, some very specific things. And one of the things he says in, in, a, in chapter four, 24, verse 37, is he says, As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. And so as we think about the, the, uh, the perversions that are occurring in Genesis chapter 6, and we think about the perversions that, are, that were compared with Sodom and Gomorrah, and then we look at what's happening in our world today. This is a church in Over the Rhine. All we have to do, if we wonder if we're in the days of Noah, all we have to do is think about the distorted meaning of a rainbow today. Here's a church with two rainbows, and one of them even has a cross on it. 
We all know that that rainbow is not the rainbow in Genesis, don't we? Let's pray.